Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Well, today I am welcoming back a very talented and thoughtful writer, as well as a man recently dubbed Film Twitter Royalty. Peter Avellino's long-form essays on the movies that fascinate and frustrate him make his blog, Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur, a must-read for cinephiles. Peter, thank you so much for being here. We're long overdue for catch-up. So how have you been doing, and what is new in the life of Peter? I've been doing fine. It's great to be back. Thank you. Um, I have uh, sadly slacked off slightly from working on my blog lately, but hopefully that will be returning very soon. Hopefully. Hey, it's a busy time. <laughs> it's a very busy time. It's a very crazy time. Yeah. Uh, all of this is true, but hopefully I will be back very soon. Yes. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Every time I watch like an older movie, I find myself doing a search after because I like to wait to read people's thoughts till after I watch the film. I'm always looking like, wait, did Peter write about it? And so you're one of my first people that I look up all the time. Well, thank you. Thank you yes. so much. Well, when we talked about a potential theme for today's episode, you pitched our subject almost like a question, like, well, what about Charles Grodin? And I was immediately thrilled by the idea, not only because sadly we just lost the great, largely comedic, but definitely pathos-filled actor in May of this year, <laughs> but also because he's one of my absolute favorites for his work in some of the movies we're going to focus on, like Midnight Run and Seems Like Old Times but also just for his wonderful supporting turns in The Great Muppet Caper or Real Life <laughs> or even cameos such as in Soy Married and Axe Murder when he dares <laughs> to tell, no, you can't like commandeer my vehicle and make some, makes uh, Anthony LaPaglia let him drive the whole way. It's hilarious. Obviously, we will go deeper into the films that you selected in a minute. But before we do that, I would love to know what you think Charles Grodin brought to movies in general and what was so uniquely Grodin and what made him so effective and so memorable? I think, you know, I don't even know why I thought of Charles Grodin. He just sort of came to mind that he would be, maybe because things are so stressful right now and yeah. just thinking about him made me happy. Exactly. Um, and how much I love some of these films and and also, there are a lot of them are films that I haven't really explored very much on my own blog. Maybe certain I've started to gravitate towards certain '70s titles, towards films that aren't comedies, yeah. and that's so much of what he did. And because I grew up watching some of these films, um, whether we're talking about seems like old times or The Incredible Shrinking Woman or The Great Muppet Caper, and I even yes. thought before. Long before he even died, I looked him up because it's almost like in my mind, he was in half the movies that came out in the 80s. And if you look up in his filmography, not only is that not true, mm -hmm. because there are long gaps where, where yeah. I don't know if he just went home and said to his agent, don't call me. Uh, but there are also a few titles in there that have basically vanished from the landscape and yep. can't really be found unless you find a really lousy copy on YouTube or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like he made this impression from 
when I was very young, going through my teenage years. And at a certain point in the 90s, he basically stopped, which was our loss. It sounds like it wasn't his loss. No, um, I think he wanted to be with his family. Yeah. I think he wanted to be with his family. And I suppose certain areas of political activism interested him more. He did a CNBC show, which, look, in the 90s, I wasn't watching cable talk shows on no. CNBC. So I don't, I, I know that at a certain, about 10 or so years ago, he, um, he called Sean Hannity a fascist on his show. So I, <laughs> I'm still okay with Charles Grodin. Um, oh, yeah. But, but beyond that, uh, even, even, you know, I didn't even really see Letterman appearances. So I don't have too much awareness of that. But it was like post-midnight run through the Beethoven movies and his cameo and Dave. He seemed to reach this sort of peak of popularity that he mm -hmm. hadn't really achieved earlier on. And then he yeah. just stopped. And then he came back later on for very odd tiny roles in films and tv shows the yeah like the x uh which i actually which i haven't seen but okay yeah it's actually kind of funny i think okay and uh while we're young uh which mm -hmm. was the uh, bumbach which again i thought was pretty good but yeah weird choices i remember yeah, well, I just... him oh go for it no, go ahead Go I ahead. was going to say, I remember, like, I didn't watch the CNBC uh, show either, so I can't speak to that. But I do remember him being on, like, 60 Minutes or 60 Minutes 2 when there was a second show. Two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where he kind of did the Andy Rooney thing. So I do remember him uh, giving these sort of cantankerous or playing his, you know, upset man kind of thing he did. But giving uh, his feedback on whatever issues he was having that day or things that were driving him nuts. And I found it very, very funny. So it was nice to see a different side of Charles Grodin. He also wrote like a dozen books, basically. Yeah. 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 And he wrote a play and he wrote all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, he had a small part in that De Niro movie, The Comedian from a few years ago, where I watched very recently just to see the two of them together yeah. again. And it's a small part. He had a major role in oddly a Law and Order SVU about 10 years ago, where okay. the weird thing about the episode was the main guest stars were him, Elliot Gould, and Buck Henry. And it was like, so is this a theme show of 70s Saturday Night Live hosts? And, yeah. But yeah, yeah. The best, um, the best of that batch that he did in those few things was probably his recurring role on the Louis show. But yeah, well said. Exactly. We wouldn't be watching that show again anytime no. soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so, I'm not but, really anxious to visit the, the Louis show, but while it was on and before we knew all that it was you know excellent show yes. and he was marvelous in it yeah he was yeah he was yeah. yeah yeah but you know he was such a figure of comedy to me back then even before even before i saw the heartbreak kid even before i was staying up late to see carson and later on letterman so i really had no awareness of that or the time he hosted saturday night live in the 70s he was just he was very funny he's i'm not to be honest it's not one of the movies i picked um i don't like the great muppet caper as much as the muppet movie to be honest oh yeah to me the muppet, movie, the muppet movie well I, I think there are differing factions on this to me oh, the okay. muppet movie has better jokes and better songs. Therefore, I prefer the Muppet movie. He's still great in The Great Muppet Caper. I loved um, him in that, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And it does occur to me that I actually saw these movies in the theater. Seems like old times, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, Great Muppet Caper, which came out, you know, within a year of each other. And so maybe 
and and then he wasn't in another movie for like three years after that. So mm. maybe from right then, it's sort of like this guy is good. This guy is funny. I like yep. him. Yeah, and, he kept showing up on the screen in things you liked, and basically, yep, was easy yes. to digest. And then you're like it brings back that old experience. I had that all the time in the nineties and late eighties also with uh, character actors. You saw, Oh, he's in that. It's going to be good. And that was Charles mm -hmm. Grodin in a nutshell. Yeah. Yes. And then by the time Dave happens, which I think he's in for what, three scenes or something, he turns up, people just start laughing because they love him so much. That's the effect. Yeah. He has in that. I haven't seen Dave in forever. I think he received some kind of a nomination for his role, which is, you know, hilarious really? because okay. it is so small. I don't think it yeah. was one of the main, it wasn't an Oscar or Golden Globe. It was something small, but I remember reading that. You mentioned Saturday Night Live, and I just learned that this week, that he mm -hmm. did uh, host, I think it was 77, an episode where the recurring gag, I guess, through the whole thing is he's supposed to not know that the show is live. And so he keeps That's blowing. Right. Yeah, sketches. I, I, and I need to I just see found that. it on Peacock. It's did very you? funny. Okay, yeah. I'm going to be watching it's there, that And basically in each scene, the each sketch he does, the joke is that he's breaking character in the middle of a B sketch or whatever. Oh, God. And, you know, he the, the idea is that he missed dress rehearsal because okay. he was out buying gifts for everyone because everyone had been so nice to him all okay. through the week. So he had no, has no idea what's going like in the B sketch. He has no idea they were going to be wearing these big costumes and stuff. So oh, we just God, keep stopping. That's so him. funny. And it's very funny. And it's... You know, it's a it's a type of confrontational humor of the sort that he would also do on Carson and Letterman. But in yeah. those cases, he was doing a very acerbic sort of thing. And on Saturday Night Live, he's very cheerful and nice to everyone. This is great. This is so funny. Where did you get these costumes? You know, that's the oh, kind of thing he's so doing. good. So he's it's, so gregarious, know. which is in the mm -hmm. other, uh, like on Carson and uh, Letterman, because I've Googled all those sketches and watched them on YouTube mm -hmm. in the past. And Oh my God, he was just sort of this cantankerous, angry man, kind of the character yeah. that he played in So He Married an Axe Murder. I have no idea why I yes. keep going back to that, but I just loved no. him in that, even though it's like two scenes. Yeah. It's it's a funny scene in the movie. Yeah. It's a funny scene in the movie. <laughs> it just is. It, it just is. is. You, yeah. you remember that. You just Again, do. You, you see him and you love him. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I just revisited um, The Great Muppet Caper on my birthday this year. Uh, because I turned 40 and I found out the movie was turning 40 and I was very excited about that. And it was actually, mm -hmm. I think the day after he passed away and I just found myself thinking about um, Charles Grodin and like, he was in that. That's right. He was in love with Piggy. And I think it was Matt yeah. Solar Zeitz was talking on Twitter about, he doesn't just like play it as a joke. He plays mm -hmm. it as a man deeply in love with Miss Piggy and it, you're mm -hmm. watching it and you do see it. I mean, he's got the goo goo eyes and, Yes. It's just, he kills in that. I am with you. I think the Muppet movie is a better film. But boy, <laughs> is the great Muppet caper just so much fun. Yeah. It is. It is, yes. yes. Well, I'm sure we're going to be referencing so many of these movies today. But for the purposes of this episode, the ones we'll be focusing on primarily will be The Heartbreak Kid from 1972. Seems like old times made eight years later, 1984's The Lonely Guy and Midnight Run, which was released in 88. While this group of movies isn't quite as serious, spoiler-wise, than perhaps a quartet of twisty neo-noir thrillers, 
still your enjoyment of both the movies and this episode will be enhanced if you've seen them all before you listen to us go further because it's Grodin. It's a reverent comedy and you should experience it firsthand. But diving in, we're kicking things off with our first of three movies written by Neil Simon. We're talking, of course, about director... I was going to mention that. Yeah, I love it. Director Elaine Nay's cringe-inducing comedy, The Heartbreak Kid, based on the short story, A Change of Plan by Bruce J. Friedman, which was published in Esquire magazine six years earlier. The film, adapted by Neil Simon, opens with Charles Grodin's quick courtship of and wedding to Lila, played by Elaine May's daughter, Jeannie Berlin. Growing quickly tired of his new bride on his honeymoon, once they arrive in Florida, Grodin's shallow sporting goods salesman, Lenny Cantro, sees and immediately falls for a blonde beach beauty played by Sybil Shepard, a college student from Minnesota on vacation with her parents. Grodin quickly starts lying to his wife about running into an old army buddy in order to spend more time with Sybil's Kelly Corcoran. Deciding to end his days old marriage and go for broke over his pursuit of the flattered, but perhaps more amused than invested Kelly. This is the opposite of a romantic comedy. It's an anti-romantic comedy that makes you squirm in discomfort a million times over. A contemporary classic that would perhaps play exceptionally well as a double feature with The Graduate, which was made by May's comedy partner, Mike Nichols, and almost starred Grodin, but he turned it down because they didn't offer him enough money. Uh, they assured him that he would be a star in The Graduate, and sure enough, Dustin Hoffman was. But at least we got Grodin in this. So Peter, talk to me about The Heartbreak Kid. Well, I want to mention the Neil Simon thing first, yes. because um, I, I realized after I gave you these four titles, the Neil Simon connection oh, with okay. three of them. Gotcha. Um, I thought about it for a second and basically decided I still wanted to talk about the movies. Um, and you could almost say that only really one of those three really feels like a Neil Simon movie anyway. A hundred percent. I am with you. Yeah. Out of curiosity, have you ever done a Neil Simon theme show on this podcast? Before? No, but that would be okay. great. Maybe we should. It would be that. great, but it's understandable that yeah. you haven't because you know, as the years go on, his style feels would antiquated be the right word, or at the very least, it I feels guess, yeah, part I, of a different time. It is from a different era, yes. And it, it, you know, aside from maybe the odd couple and the goodbye girl, and maybe not even those, I can't tell anymore. But you know, I'll get to seems like old times in a minute, but. But the heartbreak kid, Simon or no Simon, it just, you know, the Elaine May cult feels very strong right now. Oh, yeah. And watching the movie just feels awe-inspiring to me and how it doesn't flinch and how it doesn't no. hold back. It There are whole sections where you just want them to cut away. You just want to You're leave dying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my yes. God. And and. You know, there are things like, you know, the pecan pie scene is justifiably famous. And I think it goes on for about 10 minutes, half of which you keep wanting them to cut away. Because yes. he, yeah. he just, I, oh. he's, he's dropped the bomb already. Yeah. And he just keeps holding her. He won't let her leave. And he she's just tries to, to like. And like, she's going to yes. be sick. And he's, no. 
Yeah. But, but, he, but he keeps saying, this is a good thing. And you know what? Someday we'll have dinner and it's all going to be great. And, oh, and it's God, just it's so, so devastating. It, it's like it's the, the worst breakup that, of all time, basically. Well, yeah. They, yes, exactly. <laughs> Grodin, it feels like Grodin is totally in step with Elaine May in the rhythm and the tone of what they want to go for, that they're not holding back. They're not apologizing. I mean, he, he doesn't give you any sense that, you know, this guy is, is hesitating what he wants, what, no. what he wants to do. What he, once yeah. he decides, boom, it's almost like when he says to Sybil Shepherd, I'm all in, it's almost earlier than you would expect him. That's yeah. And yeah, I, I love each of Elaine May's films for various reasons, but you know, we know so much about the post-production history of those movies. Weirdly, not as much about the Heartbreak Kid. Maybe there's not as much of a story about as those mm. other films, but it is the one that feels I'm not saying it's her best, but or even my favorite or whatever, but it does feel the most complete. Every piece fits together you sense some sort of rambling shambling feel of like sections missing in the other movies not yeah. this one um sure. it it feels it feels right every step of the way and i say that even saying that every scene is not as good as the best scenes in the movie once you get to minnesota maybe it starts to you kind yeah. of want mm. them to just get to that dinner Yep. which is about a 15, 20. It, weirdly, it may be even be like the weakest part of The Graduate too. Um, when yeah, Benjamin once he gets to, to the college. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, you know, I mentioned the pecan pie scene, but one scene that I keep coming back to is the scene before it when he lays out all his cards to Eddie Albert. And it's just this one oh my long, God. Yes. broken shot Grodin facing Albert and Audra Lindley and Sybil Shepherd in the middle of the frame. They're just reacting. Audra Lindley doesn't fully understand what he's saying. Yeah, Sybil like, Shepherd what? Keeps, yeah. Like, like, like she wants to just start laughing or something. And, you know, Eddie Albert is sitting there seething. And I marvel at how they just hold that while Grodin yes. just keeps talking and talking yeah. and talking. It, I know. It, it, it's, it's remarkable to me. Yeah, it's a man in complete denial and like treating people like commodities of, well, he sporting goods is his uh, line of work. Mm -hmm. And that's basically like, well, I have this model. It was fine for a little bit. Now I'm going to upgrade. That's kind of how he's looking at people basically watching it again. I remember when I first saw this, I don't know, I was far much younger. And so you're kind of like with him, like, gosh, she's annoying. Like, what is he doing with this, you know, Jeannie Berlin character? And then when you watch it and you're older, you're like, she's on her honeymoon. She's having fun. She thinks they're together. Like, why is he such an ass? So it's kind of a, an interesting progression of when you see this as a teenager and you're very like narcissistic and you kind of get the whole like, well, that isn't really the right person for him. And I don't know if Sybil is either, but he needs to get out. And then as an adult, you're like, just what is he doing? Oh my God. And so watching it um, this time, I was marveling over Eddie Albert and Jeannie Berlin in particular. Mm -hmm. And I guess they both got nominated for Oscars. I don't know why yeah. I didn't know that before, um, but just so good. I, she had such a thankless role too, because she could have played it really, really, you know, dumb or too shrewish or whatever. And I think she brings 
um, some earthiness to her character and to the point of, you know, you can see her being one note if it had been played a certain way, but she does bring a little complexity. But I have to mm-hmm. wonder what that was like with your mom directing you as like the woman that gets left. I don't know. Must have been a little I, awkward. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they were just both on the same page. I they guess. understood the yeah. material. I mean, she did get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, out of it, exactly. So it wasn't like she was so good. She was being abused actually on set, yeah. presumably. Um, <laughs> as far as the, the character goes, I she she's she's nice. Yes, she's exactly. Nice. And maybe every now and then she's a little much, but that's okay. That's human. Yeah. You know? Double egg salad. Maybe you don't need double egg salad. But I don't still, know if you need double egg salad, but yeah. <laughs> but she's nice and she's excited and she's happy. Yes. And then, you, you, yes, there is. A, there would be a way to make her either shrewish or going the other way, just like some sort of non-entity or something. Yeah, and like movie, so much. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And the, but the movie, you know, it's like. You, you just can't stop thinking she, you know, you know, she doesn't deserve this. I mean, no, I, um, you know, it's so much is unspoken in the movie about why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, the issue of New York comes up a few times. He he's amazed that Sybil Shepherd is from Minnesota, Minnesota. That's so far from New York. And yeah. And, you know, Eddie Albert basically later calls him out on that, like you're, you know, refers to him as a New York sensibility or whatever it is yeah. later on. And, you know, we're talking about a certain Jewishness, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost a coded, yeah, Jewish yeah, yeah, uh, they, identity. They yep. Dialogue, but, you know, to use a personal anecdote here that that I might reuse in some later piece on the Heartbreak Kid, so I apologize, but... Oh, hey, that's some, okay, that's okay. Some years back, I went to a wedding in Minnesota. Um, where, where a friend I'm from? Of mine, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. But a friend of mine from New York was getting married there to someone from Minnesota. I won't get into names and stuff. Everyone was very nice, but I I always remember that the wedding and the wedding ceremony and all that, talking to people, meeting people. Who did I gravitate towards? I gravitated towards the New York Jews. That's where I felt comfortable yeah and I I always think about that when I watch the movie because it's you you think about the the wedding at the beginning of the film and the wedding at the end of the film the wedding at the beginning of the film it's so full of life life Doris Roberts yeah I know the one at the end is so boring yeah (laughs) boring and lifeless and there's a lot of money in tear gas and yes you know he doesn't know anyone. I, we'll get to the ending in a minute, but I'm just talking about the wedding aspect of it, that, that, that there is this deliberate sort of turning away from where he's from, that he wants this sort of something more that he doesn't even really stop to think about. I yes. don't know if it's just a sort of shiksa goddess that he's going for, because it, it's almost like yeah. he's not just after her for the sex. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't object to the sex, but it's no. like it's, not just it's like a something to obtain. Maybe is it status? Is that what he's trying to go for? I, but I, like I, money? I, I don't know what it is, really. I don't even yeah. know if it's just money. It's just this something other Insanity. than sanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like and, a fleeing from where you're from, but without knowing why. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, 
the final moments of the film is brutal. Um, it is like nobody is talking to him for very long. Everyone wants to leave. He doesn't fit in. I heard something about that wasn't maybe the original ending. Like it was going to go a step further to on the honeymoon when he realizes, you know, Kelly isn't always sunshine and roses either. So um, it, it might have been a little too much of a cutesy payoff. But yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's like they ended it on the right beat. Because I think so. You, you almost keep thinking while you're watching the movie that you can almost imagine various farcical endings where he takes the money he's offered or he goes back to New York and yes. tries to get Lila back or whatever it is. And the way they end it and, you know, he's just sitting there and he goes, you know, I was 10 yep. and, you know, there's nothing. Let me just stress in case anyone is getting the wrong idea. There's nothing sympathetic about him whatsoever. No, not at all. But yeah. you just you. You he's just so human in that moment. Yeah, I and, think. And, yeah, maybe for the first time, starting to it's starting to sink in slightly. Like mm -hmm. uh, this is my future. What did I do? A little bit, a mm -hmm. little bit of panic. Ab yep. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's devastating. It, Grodin has talked about um, men coming up to him over the years, and he said he's always. Um, very alarmed by the ones that identify with the main character. Like, what are they thinking? He's like, I wasn't playing a hero here, but there are some people that watch this. Like, well, you had to get away from her. She was a nightmare. You got Sybil Shepherd. Like there are the people that don't really watch the movie or understand the film. And uh, I guess this might be a good litmus test. I was joking with somebody uh, while I was on Twitter I was said, oh, I'm watching this. And someone said, I couldn't even get through it. I was so uncomfortable. And another person mm -hmm. said, um, you know, that they remembered seeing it or that on a date or something. I said, that would be like the worst date movie ever. <laughs> but as I'm talking to you, Peter, I'm thinking that might weirdly be a good litmus test. Like, what do you think, think about so. that? Yeah. Like, what one of my. That? Well, if you're able yeah. to watch it and laugh that's one thing i mean i saw a screening of it at ucla a few years ago and afterwards somebody asked me what was the audience like were they were were they laughing and it occurred to me i don't know how much because it was a packed house and i don't know how much they were laughing because i mean it's a very I uncomfortable really movie. Laugh that much yeah, out loud yeah. i gotta admit it yeah you're just more like in god of, yeah well <laughs> Yes, yes. In terms of identification, it's almost like there's the identification with the worst of myself, with the yeah. worst of us. There is that aspect of it. But if somebody, I think a litmus test of finding someone who can sit through it, who appreciates the humor and the darkness of it. True. And can can find something in there that they understand that this is human. Yeah, if they can articulate it. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. That that could be somebody special. That could be yeah. somebody special. No, it's and, funny. Like my one of my best friends, Blake Howard, for his first date with he's married to her now, but for his first date with Sam, he took her to the Ryan Gosling movie Blue Valentine, thinking it was gonna be like this great romance. He hadn't really read that much. <laughs> <laughs> and just the amount of pain you see in that film. It's like it was the worst first date movie ever. But, you know, they had a good conversation and now they're married and have kids and everything. So maybe okay, there's well, something to that. Like if, you know, that's somebody good, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So take them to the heartbreak kid at your risk or 
maybe it's a good plan. No, no, no. Every, I don't know. Everyone should see it. Everyone. Oh, should oh see absolutely. It. I mean, yeah. It, it's okay if dates, they. But yeah. You know, it's it's okay to say I watched the Heartbreak Kid and I wanted to flee the room. It's okay to say that. Oh, you yeah. just don't flee the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. I did get to see a screening of it a few years ago and, you know, should clarify for anyone who doesn't know the the horrible unavailability of the film because yes. it's like it's owned by Bristol Myers or something like that. And I was going to ask you about that. It's a shock that um, Criterion hasn't put it out. I mean, is it because well, of who owns it? Is it like a big fight? I, I think it's because of who owns it. I don't know if there's any fight or if they just, I, I don't know about a Criterion thing. That would be wonderful. Um, yeah. You know, it has turned up on TCM every now and then. Every um, once in a while, yeah. Yeah, I know I know whatever DVD release there was of it is very expensive now. And it is available on a certain can we mention that it's available on a certain site? Is that okay? Or oh yeah, go for it. Site? Yeah. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But so so it is there on YouTube. It's not a pristine transfer, but no. it's certainly watchable. Yeah. So I've had to watch things on YouTube for the show, like my family, the really good Jimmy Smith's movie that came out in like 95, totally unavailable, uh-huh. except on YouTube, thankfully. Wow. So okay. yeah, okay. I wish more films were available. Some of these like good ones, especially something like the heartbreak kid, which is, you know, a seminal work of the seventies and Elaine May yeah. and, you know, nominated for Academy Awards. And yes, just Elaine exactly. May. It's one of her, the four films she ever directed. Yep. It's Grodin's first leading role. We should keep, he was previously, he was in Rosemary's Baby. He was in Catch-22. That's right. Wasn't he the obstetrician or something like that in yes. Rosemary? Ba- okay. Yeah. Yes. He's the first doctor she goes to before Ralph okay. Bellamy. Um, and um, yeah, he's very good in both those films. But this was like his big breakout. starring mm-hmm. breakout role. And I think he even wrote at the time, maybe in his first autobiography, that people basically hated him after the movie. Yes, I'm reading one right now. And he talked about um, people basically in their mind from then on kind of label- labeled him as the jerk. So he's like, you know, it's a wonderful film. But yeah, in other people's minds, he was instantly um, linked to that character. Yes. Which is, you know, of course, a great compliment to him. Yes. May not, you know, maybe he lost out on a role or two because of that. I don't know. But it's a great compliment because he doesn't he doesn't hold back. He doesn't apologize for it. Mm-hmm. You know, as a human being playing the part, he's probably aware of what's going on. But as you know, he doesn't let any of that seep into the performance. No, it's, it's fearless. It's fearless in that sense. It is. And I just double checked. The book is called How I Got to Be Whoever It Is I Am. That's the one I'm okay. reading right now. But he's written okay. so many. And so yeah, they all have yeah. different stories. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's making you want to read his other books because he's just such a good natural storyteller. I, I was trying to find the first one. It would be so nice if you were If you weren't here. here. I, think, I love the title. Too. Which I think goes up to Midnight Run. And it's just... it. I couldn't even find it at the library right now. I'll do some more no. digging. Hopefully it's easier to find out there. But I just, yeah. it's one of those books that I only ever got from the library. So now I can't even find it. So They know. I, yeah, it's I, tragic. Basically, yeah. anyone listening, rescue these movies and these books for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Charles yes. Roden needs to be remembered. Yes. That is our grand plan. And also we're using this as a good workshopping site or workshopping project for Peter to develop these into masterclass essays on his own site as well. Yeah. 
<laughs> or we're hoping to. That was my devious plan. Is let's inspire Peter some beautiful writing. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to give no, you pressure. I appreciate that. I will try. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, next up, we have one of my favorite Goldie Hawn movies. Seriously, I like it better than Protocol or Private Benjamin or Overboard. And it's likely because she's such a perfectly daffy screwball rom-com heroine in this one. And so well-matched with her very funny co-stars, Chevy Chase, and of course, Charles Grodin, doing what he does best, reacting as the ultimate hilarious straight man. The film, of course, is Seems Like Old Times, inspired by the screwball era and the film The Talk of the Town in particular, although... The ending also feels like it's something right out of Holiday Affair. Screenwriter Neil Simon's film finds Goldie Hawn caught between a rock and a hard place, or really two husbands. After her first, Chase's writer is kidnapped and forced into committing a bank robbery. Public defender Hawn is determined to help the man out, even if it involves aiding and abetting, much to the chagrin of her current husband, Charles Grodin who stars as the L.A. District Attorney and likely the future Attorney General of California. Directed by Jay Sandrich, this lively, fun film is bursting with wordplay, sight gags, pratfalls, near misses, and it just gets funnier with every rewatch. Needless to say, I love it. And according to Janet Maslin, who told me that Grodin enjoyed pronouncing the title, seems like old times. The actor did very much as well. But how about you, Peter? What are your thoughts on this one? Um, several things. Um, part of this is nostalgia. Yeah. Um, it's like the, these four films, the first and the fourth are like in the Grodin pantheon and the middle two nostalgia is at least part of it. Okay. Um, you know, we freely, I will freely admit that all the films I could talk about on a podcast about film, this isn't really one that really is about cinema. No, it's um, fun. Yeah. Well, it is just fun. You know, it's directed by somebody who only ever directed and worked in television aside from this one movie. Yep. You know, it's, you know, it's now we can really talk about the Neil Simon thing because it feels very much like any number of other Neil Simon pieces. And I think I didn't dig out the, the autobiography where he mentions it, but I think it's one of those things where he was working on this movie at the same time as several other things. And like later on, he barely even remembered writing it because it was mm. just all in such a rush um it's you know it's and i don't even know how much you could show the movie to somebody now and expect them to have really the same connection weirdly yeah like, i think you do uh, need to kind of grow up with it maybe yeah, yeah like, like the other chevy chase movie chevy chase goldie Hawn movie foul play it really feels like a certain kind of comfort food from another age yeah it's almost in both kids the both movies are made by totally different people. They just mm-hmm. have two stars coming, but they feel very much of a piece of the late seventies, even though this is 1980, they both have music that is very much of that time. This one is Marvin Hamlish, you know, this giant helicopter shot, a, a big sir with oh, his yes. person bursting out. It just, it feels so comforting watching this movie. And yet it, okay. Uh, there's this weird connection to the talk of the town. Um, both movies are Columbia, so that doesn't seem like a coincidence. It's like no, they, not at all. like almost like it had started as 
a straight remake and then got reworked so that it only really has some vague echoes of the talking mm-hmm. town. And that's my guess. I don't know if that's right, but um, it, it moves fast. It's funny. Yeah. Um, not every joke in it has aged all that great, but enough of it is funny. People remember certain things like the chicken pepperoni and all that. And yes. as, as you know, it's a Chevy Goldie movie and yet, Grodin is really good in it. It's like he knows exact. It's like he knows that he's not the star, but he has all this heavy lifting that he has to do in terms of the plot and in terms of getting his own laughs. And Mm -hmm. it's the sort of Ralph Bellamy kind of part that in another movie, in other hands, it could just turn out to be a drip. And when he comes on screen, you're like, oh, this guy again, not going to laugh now. (laughs) <laughs> and Rodin lets that happen, that's for sure. And he's never even he's never even particularly unlikable in the movie. And for somebody who's kind of the antagonist, he's he, he never becomes hateful. Even in the courtroom scene at the very end, he says something at one point that gets a laugh, and he winds up laughing too, because he knows how ridiculous it is. And that almost feels like Grodin playing that more than it's in the script, like Grodin yes. is resisting yes. making him too much of a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And and all the pieces just kind of keep clicking along, and it goes together. And it's like I, you know, I, you know, I saw the movie at the Long Gone Scarsdale Plaza. I can watch it and find myself back in that place, and wish that we still had movies like this. And um, yeah, it's it's still a nice one to put on. It's still a nice one to put on, and. You know, there are those set pieces like the big dinner scene at the end. And everybody seems to know that they're in the same movie and, you know, the timing works. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's just fun too. It all clicks together. It really does. Yeah. I love Seems Like Old Times so much. You mentioned the, the dinner scene and the chicken pepperoni and everybody being in the same film and on the same page. Absolutely. Whenever I share this movie, that's the thing I'm like peppered with is basically everybody replies chicken pepperoni, Aurora's chicken pepperoni. So it's kind of famous for that. It makes you weirdly hungry. You brought up (laughs) that um, gorgeous shot at the beginning of the movie. You get the Marvin Hamlish and just the sweeping helicopter shot cinematography over Big Sur. Um, It does feel like you were saying uh, Jay Sandridge worked in TV. It does feel a little bit like this would have made a hell of a great um, TV movie or something. But with well, these maybe- actors, it just feels very screwball and just like a nice throwback to that era. So I guess that's why for me, you mentioned Neil Simon as um, mm-hmm. kind of being a little antiquated or whatever. But I think, you know, if you can put yourself in that classic movie mindset and just sort of transfer yourself there's nothing like it especially when it works i'm a huge fan of neil simon i was one of those nerds um when i graduated high school i used some of the money to buy myself like neil simon's plays those huge books you could basically you know use as door stops i bought volume one and volume two and read them cover to cover so it was very very fun and yeah i was excited to watch this again i watch it a little too much so it's I know, okay. know it by heart, but yeah, it's, it's very good. And I love Grodin as sort of the winking straight man. Like there's a running gag through the movie that 
um, Goldie Hawn, she kind of a- adopts everything that comes into her life, like ex-cons, because she's a public defender. She also has a million stray dogs that come to her door and they take them, you know, a different dog shows up every day. And then there's this really funny scene early on when he's on the bed and there are like eight dogs there and uh, or she is. And he's like, I'm the last one to get in the bed with you. And so there's some good jokes about that of they're starting to get romantic and there's another dog here. And so Grodin does it just very well. Yeah. There's a, you mentioned the TV movie thing. I mean, maybe some of it could have been done as a TV movie at the time, mm-hmm. but it's probably better than what those movies has more star power, better screenplay on yeah. um, some of the screenplay probably the movie itself couldn't be directly translated to the stage. Oh no. But there, there are entire sequences that you can very easily imagine that being as part of a play. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. just Neil Simon. And it did occur to me that as far as the chicken pepperoni goes, there is a surprising amount of food in these movies. There's the, in the heartbreak kid, you know, there's, the whole dinner scene at the end, no deceit in the cauliflower. And yep. there's chicken pepperoni here and there's more coming up with Midnight Run. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, but, yeah, chorizo and eggs. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I know. We yeah. should be eating chorizo and eggs while we do this podcast. but We really should have. Missed yeah. opportunity, Peter. I blame that. myself Sorry. on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably for the best. You know, we can't sit here eating arm very yeah then we would be like reenacting that that egg salad scene from heartbreak kid and like grossing Uh, each other out it wouldn't be good yeah i'm one of those weirdos who i saw this interview once with larry david totally a, a different aside here but he was saying one of the reasons he hated being single is because of like the lunch date they always say order something easy like a salad then the salad comes and it's ridiculous it's messy order a sandwich (laughs) have you tried eating a sandwich in a restaurant like he had this whole bit and i was dying because i'm like that is the single person's nightmare yes it's like what do you order and it's yeah no wonder nobody really eats well on dates they're like so worried yeah that's true. That's true. I probably would still go with the salad, but then you'd get a salad that would be like this giant bowl and yeah. be so much trouble. That's oh, the yeah. worst salad I ever eat. had was I ordered a wedge salad and they literally just brought like a block and I had to oh, yeah, make had the those. salad. Yeah. I, yeah. Yep. I actually do like them, but I probably wouldn't get one on a date. So. No, no, I messed that one up too. I guess I didn't think it was so literal. It's like, oh, I have to build the salad. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, so where'd you grow up? And I'm building the salad. You know, you can just see it. Yeah. It was basically like being in a Charles Grodin movie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like old times. It's also so good because like, we basically are redoing the talk of the town and they gave Chevy Chase the Cary Grant role, but weirdly mm-hmm. it kind of works. And uh, oh, for, yeah. yeah, for Grodin to me, he was more like, I guess, Jimmy Stewart in Philadelphia story. Also, you know, Ronald Coleman's likable. Um, you mentioned, was it Raymond Barry? Um, all these people, he, he's doing it so well. And just the courtroom scene alone where they're mm-hmm. like summing everything up. I have no idea how they kept all of that dialogue straight and how they just didn't crack up every five minutes because <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun. I would have loved to have known the behind the scenes of that movie because midnight run, I guess was no picnic to film, 
but mm-hmm. it just looks so fun. But this one, it's hard to believe like that this, time. yeah, that this would be grueling. The, the house and all that are probably sets, yeah. so they're probably on the lot every day. It probably wasn't the most strenuous shoot no. any of them were ever on, I'm going to guess. So yeah. that sounds kind of nice in the spring of 1980, shooting a movie in Hollywood on sound stages. That sounds, you know, probably go to some nice restaurant for dinner at the end of the day. Yeah. That sounds pretty nice, pretty good to me, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking about food so much, you're going to definitely build up an appetite for sure. And you're running in and out of rooms. You're punching each other out. I mean, that's it's, right. Yeah, that's right. it is so there, funny. There are people. I, if you look up, there are websites of people who basically been trying to do their own chicken pepperoni recipe. I don't know yep. if it really is an actual thing from before the movie, but you know, people have tried it. So maybe it's yeah. great. I don't know. I don't know. I tried to make it once, but I'm the worst cook in the world. So please don't go off of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm just yeah, just putting that out there. Boy, I am advertising myself today. It's like I'm the worst date. I can't cook. I can talk movies though till you're blue in the face. Yes. You like <laughs> seems like old times. That's all there is. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, good exactly. Good <laughs> yeah. Luckily, uh, Peter's like, what did I get into today saying yes to this? But we're getting on some tangents. No. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> we need to from time to time. Well, our next title released in 1984 was helmed by Love Story, The In-Laws, Silver Streak, the out-of-towners, and Plaza Suite director Arthur Hiller, who not only knows funny, but in his multiple collaborations with Neil Simon, usually knows how to translate it to the screen. And he sure gives it his best try in The Lonely Guy, which scripted by Neil Simon, Ed Weinberger, and Stan Daniels, based on the 1978 Bruce J. Friedman book, The Lonely Guy's Book of Life, which I haven't read. I'm not sure if you have. But it's centered on a greeting card writer played by Steve Martin in the movie. After our protagonist is dumped by his free-loving, free-living, very polyamorous ballerina lover, he finds himself on a downturn as he tries to locate a new, none-too-depressing apartment and then strikes out with both women and new pals alike, except for, of course, Charles Grodin as a fellow self-described lonely guy who tries to show him the ropes regarding this new way of life, doing everything from helping him buy new ferns for his apartment that he's advised not to call plants, but guys, and also throwing a fabulous party with life-size cutouts of celebrities like Dolly Parton. Grodin excels as the depressive, sad sack, And he gets the tone exactly right, even when the film, which to me feels more like a collection of some very funny and some far less than funny Saturday Night Live skits does. Still, I love the actors, including scene stealer Judith Ivey as a lonely woman that Martin meets who's dated and married multiple lonely guys in the past. And it was a good one to revisit for the first time since childhood. But how about you? What's your take on the lonely guy? I think I like the lonely guy more than you do. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I thought you probably would because you suggested uh, saw this it. At yes. Yonkers, saw this at Yonkers Movie Land with my dad. Um, so yes, there is that nostalgia factor. Um, I will freely admit that in thinking about Rodin films, I didn't want to spend too much time on movies where he's a supporting actor in. Um, because yeah, ends, we yes, talked about Heaven Can Wait a little. Yeah. Well, you know, Heaven Can Wait in real life and Ishtar, yeah, of course. Yeah, real, and, oh, um, Ishtar too, yes. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, I didn't want to spend too much time in those because they're not his movies. Yeah. Um, the Lonely Guy isn't his movie, but I would almost make the argument that he has more of an effect in The Lonely Guy than in any of those films. Because it's almost like, it's not even a question of him stealing the movie. It's almost like he becomes part of the movie's bloodstream with the way he talks and his body language. And, you know, when he says, just says things like, gee, Larry, I don't know. And you kind of remember him saying this when Steve Martin goes off to try something. It's still kind of ringing in your head that these mm-hmm. things aren't going to go well mm-hmm. for him. And you just will occasionally cut back to him at home playing that chess with the robot. And he's just I know. So <laughs> over. And he's just so defiant. Defeated. And <laughs> yes. the movie is loosely plotted enough that they can cut in those um, those scenes with him and Steve Martin really anywhere, which they They did. really could, and, yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I have a vague recollection of reading a Steve Martin interview long ago where he basically said that, you know, he and Roden basically, you know, wrote that stuff themselves. Um, uh, it wouldn't so, surprise me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It felt like a lot of cooks were in the kitchen on this one, but yeah, I'm sure. the Grodin stuff, why the, man. The Neil Simon thing, how much of Neil Simon is in this movie? Yeah, it doesn't it's feel just, very the, Neil The credits Simon. are weird, so, but it's yeah. things like when he talks about, you know, getting a haircut, when he talks about, um, uh, you know, that he doesn't like to take naps in the middle of the day, because when you wake up, you get that shock of who you are. And <laughs> I really don't like to feel that more than yes, once a day. I know. And the, the shot of him at the party when he's in the bedroom and he's by himself just watching Battlestar Galactica. I mean, that's perfect. Yes. I just love that. Yeah, I just love that. I you, <laughs> I loved him in it. I I felt like maybe Steve Martin was miscast. He was kind of, I think, trying to play too deadpan, and we already have Grodin for that. Or else he was trying mm-hmm. to play too zany. I don't know. There was something a little I, off a little, but I just, I loved Grodin in it. He wanted to like, go in the movie and adopt him, basically. Yeah. I kind of know. I, I, I think Steve Martin's funny in it, but I do know what you mean, that there's a, it's like it's several different tones that he's going for. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if there had been another director other than Arthur Hiller, I don't know. I don't know. Grodin yeah. seems so dialed in that that even you know he and he doesn't even just stay at that one morose level. You no. know when he's out and he's talking to that girl at the bar and he's all all animated. You can see the full person that he is. Mm-hmm. And it's it, to oh me, god, it's I love that scene so much. You think, oh, he's yes. meeting and having such a wonderful date, and now he's just there to like keep her distracted for an hour. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like fend off other guys that exactly. You know, yeah, because he's movie. so really not a do. threat that yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. No, no, he's I and yeah and yes, I have more of a fondness for this film. I guess part of, partly because of nostalgia, partly because some that still makes me laugh. Um, Certain things you just can't really I don't explain. Know, yeah, they they yeah. strike you funny or they don't. This one mostly did not, but in those moments, the golden <laughs> moments, like I'm just dying. Yeah, and I love the ending. I mean, I'm giving away an ending, but like Doctor Joyce Brothers comes out, and that's yes. that's yeah. his new girlfriend. I love that touch. Um, so yeah, it's a very 80s of the time, but it's very yeah. 80s. It's very episodic. It's it's again you like seems like old times in its own way maybe you had to be there you had to be there when this played on cable yes. in a loop back 
back then. I don't know. Hey, it's a comedy scored by Jerry Goldsmith. What's not to like? I mean, uh, it still makes me laugh. And I think, um, you know, Grodin's other movie in 84, this one came out in January 84. It was in The Woman in Red, which was, again, a supporting performance. And my vague recollection is that he, it's not a great movie, but maybe he does sort of develop a sort of fully fleshed out character almost separate from the movie. Okay, um, I did, I don't know that I saw that. It's it's it's, yeah. it's Gene Wilder. It's based on yeah, French, I, French farce. It's okay. it's okay. It's okay. it's not a favorite of mine. I actually saw that with my dad too, and I would prefer oh. the only guy. But um, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so eighty yeah, four was kind of a a different year for Charles Grodin, but he was I damn su- it, he was trying some things. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I um. No, I can see some of the drawbacks in this film, but you know, it it's a you know, maybe everything in it doesn't work, but enough of it makes me laugh. That yeah, no, that's I'm, I'm with it. And I think Rodin really, really is pretty fantastic. He, he is. Yep. He elevates the film, I guess, which is why I want to pick this one because it is a supporting one. He's great in Heaven Can Wait, but that one, real life, is Albert Brooks movie. So I didn't want to talk about. Yeah, that's more that. definitively Al Brooks. Yeah, Albert exactly. Brooks. Yep. Exactly, and this this feels like. If it's not in the Grodin pantheon, at least deserves to be put on the shelf as like this true example of what Grodin's he can humor. Do. Yeah. And what he could do in films and how good an actor he was for that. Yeah. Because yeah. And I really think with was. Heaven Can Wait, you kind of link it too much with, again, Elaine May and Warren Beatty and Buck Henry and that. So mm-hmm. this is kind of him separate of, yep. This is Even what though he said he he has the mouse line in that one, the uh, she saw a mouse no before outside the cheat room. That's a great reading, but, uh, but yes, <laughs> you're right, you're right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, lastly, we have my favorite Charles Grodin movie and the very first Robert De Niro movie that I ever saw as a kid, and then I proceeded to watch it repeatedly for decades. Of course, it is Beverly Hills Cop and Son of a Woman director Martin Bress, 1988. Box office and critical smash Midnight Run, co-starring John Ashton, Yafit Koto, Dennis Farina, Joe Pantoliano, and Philip Baker Hall as Sidney years before he played essentially the same character for Paul Thomas Anderson in Sydney, also known as Hard Eight. Robert De Niro takes a break from more dramatic fare. This was right after Untouchables. He wanted to do this. Uh, And here he plays an ex-Chicago cop turned L.A. bounty hunter, Jack Walsh, who's enlisted by Pantoliano's bail bondsman, Eddie Moscone, to locate Grodin's accountant, Jonathan the Duke Mardukas, after he embezzled from the mob, got busted, and then skipped town while out on bail. With only five days to bring the man back before Joey Pants is out all of his dough, Jack falls back on old cop tricks to find him in New York, and the two embark on a hilarious misadventure of planes, trains, and other automobiles as the Duke tries to avoid going back to what he feels will be his certain death from Dennis Farina's mob boss. Initially manipulating one another with tall tales and deceit as things get crazier on the road, with not only the mob, but also Jack's dim-witted but determined bounty hunter rival John Ashton trying to bring the Duke back for himself, Grodin and De Niro begin to bond in spite of themselves, working from a great script by George Gallo, but with a healthy dose of improvisation, 
physical humor thrown in there as well. The chemistry between the pair is surprisingly great, and it's still a film I love to watch at least once or twice or maybe more a year. How about you? Teresa and eggs. Teresa and eggs. Teresa and eggs. Yes. You, you know, I, I like that they never bring the Teresa and eggs thing back. You could no. almost imagine yeah. a studio note to be like, can maybe when they get to the like to to the end of the thing, could they maybe finally get his eggs? They're like, no, 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 they just never mention it again, and that's yeah. okay. That's okay. Yep. It's just it's just left hanging. Um, you yeah. know, I am um, saw this at the Sawmill Multiplex in Hawthorne in Westchester County. Um, um, I love that you remember where you saw all of these. It's so good. Always, yes, always remember these things. Yeah. Um, I usually do, but they start like late 80s into the 90s. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, th th this is sort of a movie that it's almost like maybe there was a little bit too much exposure on cable to me by a certain point. So I sort of okay. didn't see it for a long time. You were like, it's um, too much. Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. So I never even like got the DVD because it was almost like enough already. Yeah. Um, and then at some point last year when I was just home all the time and I was just watching movies every night I found it on streaming and I watched it and was like this is pretty close to perfect yeah. everybody is everybody is operating at the top of their game in this movie mm -hmm. um you know it's a fantastic script Brest knows exactly what this needs to be you know De Niro and Grodin are fantastic together all the supporting actors the Danny Elfman score it's yeah, just all, I love that score. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's like any time it wasn't even that it wasn't even that big of a hit. You know, I guess Die Hard got the really big hit at that point. Yeah, Look that year Die think, Hard was. But it was but, I think it was such a surprise hit though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um I feel like and I can't even think of examples, but I feel like there have been movies where they tried to basically redo mm -hmm. this and with probably an Elfman like score. And it never works. It's like the the, the, no. the the tone is off. The sensibilities are wrong. It's like there's too much ad-libbing. I've never read the script, but it feels like there's the right amount of ad-libbing in this yep. one. I'm yeah. going to guess that chorizo and eggs or potatoes, leonese or certain things are just kind of happened. I don't know if they did. Maybe not. I don't know. Even, yeah. I still have plot questions, but it's like it almost doesn't matter. I mean, no, I, I know every time there are some things where you're like, wait, how would that work? But you're not supposed to think about that. Well, yes. yeah, there's <laughs> that. I, can you drive from Chicago to Amarillo, Texas in about a, like less than a day? I don't yes. know. Yeah. Um, I've always, I, I've never tried it, but maybe mm -hmm. you can. I don't know. So it's things like that. But, <laughs> but this doesn't matter. No, this not at all. Matter. You're having to Every, fun. Everything clicks and it's like. It, it, it makes it look easy, but it takes real skill to figure out the balance between the comedy and the actual drama going on with the De Niro character. And yep. in some ways, you know, it it's like the culmination of Grodin as movie star. This is just about the best role he could have got. Yep. And because, you know, you know, he was top build in a few 70s movies and then throughout the 80s he's a supporting player a lot of mm -hmm. time and then this one Brest wanted him and I guess because of Beverly Hills Cop he could get him over Cher or Robin Williams or whoever else yeah Cher and Robin Williams and yep 
sometimes we think of Grodin's screen persona as being, you know, Beethoven, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of his talk show persona with Carson of trying to needle somebody, but there has to be enough actual reality to it that the Mm -hmm. balance is correct. Yeah, there's some heart there. Yep. And what I love about it, too, is just that dynamic that works so well between them. I guess you brought up like how much of it was scripted. Um, George Gallo uh, famously wouldn't travel, I guess, at the time. So he would sometimes send in notes like, well, this is what happens in the scene. And then they would have to do some improvising. And um, I guess midway through, uh, De Niro even went to Martin Brest and was like, God, Chuck is getting on my nerves. And he's like, good, because he's supposed to. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's exactly what he was supposed to do. And so, like, the most famous improv that people talk about all the time is the scene on the train, which uh, kills me, um, where uh, Grodin is asking him, have you ever had sex with an animal, Jack? And he said, (laughs) "And uh, you know, because I saw you eyeing some chickens over there. And he said, it's the only way I could get like a smirk or a smile out of Nero or get him to raise his head because he's so good at playing like pissed off that we weren't Mm -hmm. like getting that connect. And so uh, Breast kept coming over to me and saying like, it wasn't it. We got to do it again. We got to, can you get him some other way? And he said, so he considered him to be a magnificent director. Other people had problems with it. Yeah. Fikoto, of course, has said that he was quite a taskmaster and um, he was sick the whole shoot because of it. He said, it's a really funny movie. I didn't expect it to be funny because it sure wasn't funny to make. So, um, yeah. And I guess the cinematographer and his whole crew walked. So there was some real like stuff going on, but as Grodin wrote, it doesn't look like the easiest, it doesn't look like the easiest shoot in the world. Having The logistics must've been a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. But like Grodin said, um, he's like between me and Bob, I was the talker, which everyone knows because De Niro's very shy. He said, we saw this big fight play out in the lobby between the cinematographer and Martin Brest. And, you know, we're like wondering, what do we do? And uh, Grodin said, let's just take care of us and, you know, what we need to do. And that's what they did. And that's why it works so well. Yeah. It, it, it just feels like all the decisions are made. It's, it's weird. I was watching it last night and it's percolated in my head for, for a while, but um, it almost feels like somebody else making it, the movie being made at another point in time, the climax at the airport, like would have been turned into a shootout or something. Yeah, I agree um, with you. Yeah, the Serrano's got the discs moment. But, we would have had like people running and jumping over. Uh, we It would have played like to live and die in LA, basically. Yeah, and yeah. I maybe Bress decided he'd done a shootout in Beverly Hills Cop mm-hmm. and didn't want to. It almost feels like one of the last movies where the bad guy is led away in handcuffs at the end and not Not killed. like massacred, yeah. But, but, but it's a suspense Mm-hmm. sequence and it's not an action sequence and that feels correct it does what the movie should be i i really yeah. love that too that um you know he says that horrible thing uh to de niro about another cop is you know screwing your wife or something like that and mm-hmm. um de niro in, in in any movie today we would have seen him you know punch him out or do something like that he just has to mm-hmm. stand there and take it because he knows yeah. eventually he's going to get arrested 
And after yeah. he gets arrested, he doesn't walk over and hit him. He just says, you're under arrest. And yeah. Uh, yeah. it's perfect. You were saying, yeah. too, about the, the De Niro character. And one of my favorite things about Midnight Run, something I didn't observe the first 200 times I saw it as a kid, but later on as a writer started to appreciate was when they dole out information about him, like it's only in the last half hour or the last chunk that we finally learn the reason he was run out of um, the Chicago police department was Serrano or um, which is Dennis Farina's character or um, you know, what the watch means. He'd been talking about this watch the whole time. We didn't know. Um, so it was very clever on when they doled out information and why I went to a screening of a different George Gallo movie, uh, years ago and they introduced him and, um, they said, you know, and midnight run. And I was the one in the theater that like whooped and cheered and like applauded. Nobody else did. And so then he like, he just cocked his head immediately. He goes, Oh, so you're the one. And I just, I love that, that, yeah, there are a few of us rabbit fans. Yeah. I was freaking out. Yes. Yeah. They're like talking about his other stuff and I'm like, man, I run. Yeah. So. Wow. I always thought the cult of midnight run didn't take long, but okay. I guess they were Uh, too cool in Scottsdale to cheer. I I don't know what their problem was. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not too Um, cool. I'm a nerd. I'm fine with it. Yes. You, I will no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> you're, you're right about the exposition. I mean, that in itself is a skill of knowing when and how to dole that stuff out. And the movie balances that with things like Grodin talking, saying to De Niro, you know, trains, they have stops. So yes. people, you know, when they, they can get off the train, <laughs> when it makes the stop, they don't, they don't like the That's road, how that works, yeah. And whatever ad-libbing or notes from Gallo while they're shooting, I mean, it does feel like they shot a lot of stuff not knowing what they were going to use. And that's yeah. just one of those things that's kind of gold. Probably some happy accidents. You yes. lose that, but then it wouldn't, then it would be a lesser movie. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be You need those moments of Broden needling him. And, you know, even moments like when they go to visit De Niro's wife. Um, I love that scene. I think that makes the movie. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. And even watching Grodin in that scene where he has nothing to do, but he's just kind of trying to stand there and be an obtrusive. And mm-hmm. he, he's really good in that scene, too. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I love his reactions. Like uh, there's a really great moment. Totally different. That's a dramatic scene we're talking about. But earlier on, when uh, De Niro finds out his card has been canceled and he's trying to pull mm-hmm. out Alonzo Mosley's badge, and she's like, Well, that's not the name on the. And the way Grodin wordlessly interacts with the woman giving De Niro yeah. a hard time it's is true. just fabulous. Right. Like he winks right. and then he kind of right. like does this thing with his hand, like points, like you're, you know, you're on the ball. And just love Grodin in that. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Physical. He's a master at sort of getting himself in those moments, whether yes. silently or just injecting a line or two when De Niro is arguing with John Ashton or whatever. I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's got some very good lines in there yes, too. He and he's he's pretty phenomenal in the movie. I mean, yeah. it's crazy to say it. It really is this sort of peak of him as movie presence, movie star, movie actor, because, you know, material doesn't come 
material that good doesn't come along. His next movie after this was Taking Care of Business, which isn't the worst movie in the mm-hmm. world, but it is a f- pretty formulaic comedy. Yeah. And maybe that was a big payday after Midnight Run. I don't know, but it's not quite on the same. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. It's just not. No. It's just not. And, you know, the way he looks at those coins in the counter, how much is coffee? 53 cents. How much is tea? 53 cents. I'll have tea. And then just, yeah. he just tells the oh, or the litmus configuration test litmus con- yes. that's one of his best scenes yeah yes or just even in the moments where he's like trying to advise him on uh you know why are you smoking you know are you mm-hmm. in denial or why why do you want to open a coffee shop just so yeah. that yeah. i also like the way some of the the lines that seem throwaway come back like you know you didn't stash all that money like I have enough money on me or something like that. Or, you know, there are Mm -hmm. things that are going to come back that I love. Uh, I showed this earlier in the year to Kate Gabrielle, who's um, a good friend. And we were doing these DeLon De Niro things where she hadn't seen any De Niro. And so I recommended that she watch it like twice in two days because she loved it so (laughs) much. And she said, you know, I noticed when he was telling um, De Niro about his ulcer, like you should have milk. And Nero like shuts him down. But in the next scene, they're walking out. He's drinking milk. And it's just like a quick thing. And I don't know why that never clicked. And until she (laughs) said that, I'm like, oh, my God, milk, it's named like name dropped. They talk about milk like three or four times in this movie. It kind of cracks me up. So, yeah, food and drink. We had coffee and tea. Again, it's a golden thing. um, Yeah. The, the bit where he's he's chastising him about how much of a tip he left on the train yes. for dinner. Yeah. Somehow, somehow, at the end, the see you in the next life thing between the two of them, it works. It it's works. like a needle being threaded. Yeah. Somehow it gets to that point where it actually is emotional. Yeah, it is a relationship. The They've been through, not like you know, on the surface level of a buddy comedy, but they've been through stuff. They know secrets about each other's lives. Gallo said he based the characters on his parents, uh, who (laughs) he said, listening to them fight over the years, they didn't realize how funny they were. Uh, Like when you would actually listen, step back. And uh, he said, so he kind of, so maybe that's why Paramount at first, well, they wanted some sex appeals. So they were like, well, it should be De Niro and Cher, uh, which would have been a whole different movie. I I mean, Robin Williams would have been great, but yeah. Putting Cher in a movie isn't the worst idea in the world. But but it's a different thing. Yeah. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. Yeah. Totally different movie. (laughs) <laughs> this one is really special. This one's really yeah, special. Because, and Williams, yeah. I think, would have been fabulous. And he worked with De Niro in Awakenings. But I mm-hmm. think it would have turned into every scene as a bit. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and we needed that straight man or that reaction thing that uh, Grodin can yes. do. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He's yeah. wonderful. Yes. Yeah. 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 Such a good one. He's, he was great. He was well, great. Uh, I know we talk about King Kong now or what? uh, I was going to ask you. Yeah. I know when we were planning for this, we probably figured that we'd only have time for these, but there are definitely other great supporting performances and film roles that deserve a shout out. So yeah. King Kong or anything else, Peter, do you have any? One that I thought about was 11 Harrow house, which, um, I don't know that one. You haven't seen it? No. Oh, okay. It's it's a seventies movie. It was like his big movie star thing after the Heartbreak Kid. It's a heist movie in England 
with oh him God. and Candace Bergen and James Mason and John Gilgood and Trevor Howard. A double billet with the Great Muppet Caper, actually, but because there, there's diamonds in it. Okay, um, Eleven I'll freely House. admit that um, Eleven Harrow House. I freely admit that it's one of those '70s movies that I always want to like more than I do, oh, even okay. though I have a DVD and we'll put it in every now and then. It's almost too dry. Uh, it's like it's a weirdly quiet movie like shouldn't there be more activity on the set it's one of those 70s things i guess and it's a weird case where i think there were issues so through the years there have been two different versions of the movie in circulation okay. one with the Grodin narration and one without i think if you find the movie now it will have the narration so maybe that's the way it's supposed to be he narrates the movie but it's almost like Grodin is just offering dry commentary on the film throughout it. Um, mm. So that in itself, and he's his name is on it as a writer also, so that in itself makes it a Grodin essential, even though I liked it a little bit more, but I don't dislike it. It's just, like I said, it's almost too dry, but it's got nice stuff. And if you like 70s heist movies. I do. That's, yeah, oh, definitely yeah. my yeah, aesthetic. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to check and, that one out. And, you know, there, there's King Kong, which, you know, again, was one I decided against because it's not really a Grodin movie, no. but it's King Kong. I have a fondness for it. It's really, even his performance sort of adds to the all over the place nature of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like how much, how straight is this? How, how much of a satire is this? What is this? It's, it's a crazy film. I don't know. I if haven't you're a seen fan it since time. childhood. Actually, okay. No, you yeah. should see it again. You should okay. see it. it's, wor it's worth seeking out. All right. It. Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And th these were the times when it's like they were trying to make him a movie star, and then he just kind of, I guess, settled into a little bit more of the. He figured out his supporting. mode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a movie from '79 that he did with Art Carney and Farrah Fawcett called Sunburn that that has a poster I've always liked, but I remember again being not that great. It's very hard to find now. Somebody on Twitter told me that it's because, probably because of a Wings song that's in the movie. Oh. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds plausible. Um, there was another one I was looking up. I think it was called Thieves. Is that good? Thieves. Never yeah. seen it. Yeah. Okay. Never I don't seen know. It. The title I grabbed know. me. I think it was mid-70s. Yeah. It's My Turn is an interesting one. Again, oh, yeah. Really I've seen movie. that with Michael Douglas okay. and Jill Michael Douglas and Jill Clayberg. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, you know, we could mention again The Incredible Shrinking Woman. We, even The Couch Trip isn't a great movie. I kind of enjoy it. I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, some stuff about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Day, I, uh, Heart and Souls. I'm trying to think of some of his other ones. I haven't seen Heart and Souls in years. I know. I, uh, yeah. I did, everyone mentions Clifford now. I never actually saw Clifford until last year. So I saw it this can, year, and I was okay. not a fan, actually. But it's I love him in it. But Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, Martin Short, I, I just, it should have, oh, it got on my nerves too fast. And, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I haven't seen the Beethoven movies in a long time. I mean, I was I know. not saw a kid when I came kid. out either. Yeah. So. You know, but I was probably a little, that. I don't know. I was like in that um, tweenish. So it was like, you mm -hmm. know, what are these? Yeah. Wasn't really my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was that weird kid that was like, I want to stay home and watch Midnight Run. No, I went to the movies every weekend anyway, but uh, my parents sure. let us kind of watch whatever. But yeah. So, so it was like Beethoven or Midnight Run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beethoven, I, I think. I remember being okay with it. I don't know. I'm not even yeah. going to commit. I, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to commit on that one either. I remember liking Dave. No, no, no. He's great in Dave. It's, yeah. it's like three scenes, but yeah, he's great yeah, in yeah. it. And, um, 
Yeah. And, um, and you know, Ishtar, he's great in Ishtar. Yes, he you is know. playing against Again, type. Blaine May. Yeah, yeah, everybody kind of plays against type in that movie. And uh, so you have him as a CIA agent who's like scheming. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit more against type, but yeah. That's cool. But again, he feels very it feels very much attuned with Elaine May's dialogue in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, he they, knows they, how they to sing well. it, basically. He Ex- knows how to yes. yeah, that, sing that's those a great notes. way to put it. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah, well, this was trust. so much fun, Peter. I yeah. really appreciated this. I like ate up your whole afternoon talking about Charles Grodin, I, but what could I be better, basically? That- <laughs> exactly yes yeah exactly. and now i gotta go make some tree zone eggs or maybe not make it maybe order it because it's me in the kitchen that's a taco it. place across the street from me that has chorizo so maybe i'll do something about that yeah okay see what they got yeah follow it up with chicken pepperoni and you got yourself a meal and that potatoes leonese stuff and yeah a side order of cauliflower where there will be no deceit yeah, and maybe not any egg salad because we all saw that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no eggs. Oh boy. Yes. No <laughs> yeah, let's avoid that. No, but this was okay. such a treat. I really appreciated this. this Thank was, you. Happy to do it. This was a lot of fun, Jen. A lot of fun. Thank you. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.